0: Registrations are now open for the 7th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Sydney from the 3rd to the 5th of May 2019. To register, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Rebecca Reed, who's a naturopath from Endeavour College of Natural Health in Brisbane, where she graduated in 2014 and is a successful applicant to the Student Summer Research Program at Endeavour. She's the Research Project Coordinator and Student Liaison Officer for the Office of Research at Endeavour College of Natural Health in Brisbane And she's only one of 11 competitively appointed fellows of the International Naturopathy Research Leadership Program at the Australian Research Centre in Complementary and Integrative Medicine at the University of Technology in Sydney, that's UTS. In addition, Rebecca is currently undertaking her PhD at the Australian Research Centre in Complementary and Integrative Medicine, where she is investigating health service utilisation by women with endometriosis and the naturopathic prescription characteristics and treatments utilised to manage endometriosis in Australian naturopathic clinical practise. Welcome to FX Medicine, Rebecca, how are you going? I'm
1: great, thank you. How
0: are you, Andrew? I'm good, thank you. Now, you've done a lot of research and investigation into endometriosis and the traditional naturopathic management, which is something that I think we're sorely lacking. We sort of tend to go, we want to go science, we want to go evidence and things like that, but there's a whole history of naturopathic yes. treatment management that's missing.
1: That's very true. Um, as far as I'm aware, no one's actually ever looked into this. Um, where I've done part of my project at the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, in Oregon in the U.S., I was the first researcher to ever go there and utilize their traditional rare books to actually conduct a project in this form.
0: Wow. So what were they, yeah. all dusty and locked away in a triple vault? It
1: was amazing. I can't even explain how wonderful. It was like 2,000 really rare old naturopathic texts, reading them for the three weeks. It was wonderful.
0: I have to ask there, did you have to wear the cotton gloves and things when you were handling them?
1: I wanted to. I wanted to. <laughs> um, I did ask, <laughs> um, but no, I had to use a... Foam casing and the foam uh, bookmark to make sure that the texts weren't like damaged by me touching them or anything.
0: Oh, so even more uh, yeah. protective.
1: Yeah, because a lot of them were falling apart. Yeah. Um a lot of them had like you know mildew and spines were broken. So they're doing a rebinding process. Mm. Um, particularly, their Benedict Lust collection has just undergone a really large binding process. Yeah. But some of their older texts, yeah, they are sadly falling apart. So.
0: What era is this from? Is this from the eclectic physicians in America in the sort of late 18th century?
1: Yeah. So um, wow. the text that I looked at was from eighteen
0: hundred The 1800s, forgive me, 19th century. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Um, and that was a year range that we chose um, because of the American naturopathic movement as well as the Australian. So I really focused on the Western naturopathic front.
0: Can I just I, – I know this is a, di- a, a digress, but – with the eclectic physicians, what was their influence? Was it the German immigrants coming across and wanting a natural health system, if you like? Where I'm did not they? Sure,
1: it was that they, they, they did obviously come across and implement naturopathic practice into the American systems. But um, for this this project in particular, it was the eclectics have strong roots in naturopathic foundation. Right.
2: Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Same with Nature Cure, which came from America. Uh, I started from Germany and yeah. prior. Um, to nature cure was the water cure as well. Right. um,
0: But the eclectics also learnt a lot from the American Native Indians as well, didn't they?
1: Yes, and that's been um, in my data as well. Some of the herbs that I've found are not very common. Um, They're also not necessarily put into Australian practice or even American naturopathic practice. So I think there is going to be that traditional roots that comes from each country.
0: Well, I do hope that there's a resurgence of some of these herbs because they, I've used them in previously and they just work mm-hmm. like nothing else, you know, vine and things like that. They're yeah. incredible. Yeah,
1: well, vine
0: was one of the herbs that I did find, yeah. So here yeah. we go. <laughs> okay. Endometriosis. Let's give an, in, an overview of what endometriosis mm-hmm. is. I think there, therein lies the first confusion.
1: So endometriosis, it's, it is a complex and it is a chronic reproductive disease. And it's characterized by the presence of tissue that is similar to the endometrium that grows outside of the uterus. Mm -hmm. That's the the basic definition. So these the the tissue that develops forms lesions and can adhere to the reproductive organs as well as the neighbouring organs like the bladder and the bowel. Um, However, I've actually recently read some cases where it's been found in thumbs, in knees, uh, the lungs, the brain,
0: eyes, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, So it can really travel around the body, um, but those are considered quite rare. There's a bit of data from 2009 that looked at some of the prevalence of endo, and this was a worldwide study that stated it was one in 10 women of reproductive age that have endo. And in 2010, it was estimated that 176 million women worldwide have endometriosis. So we've got data that's a little bit outdated now, so we really need to be working on finding out exactly how much women do have endometriosis, but it's also quite tricky because the condition itself is very complex. Um, There's been some research where it's talking about the possibility of having inflammation aspects, autoimmune aspects, estrogen, progesterone ratios being out of balance as well, but we really don't know what the cause is. We are still trying to just even understand the basic pathophysiology. So there's a wide range of areas, they kind of cover endometriosis at this stage. And we just we really just don't know the, the ins and outs of it to
0: 110%. What about the notion that it's hormonally driven and therefore when the hormones drop in menopause mm-hmm. that it therefore ceases to become a problem?
1: That is definitely, I think, incorrect. I've spoken to very young women who have been forced into menopause um, or have had a complete hysterectomy and they still have endo. Um, I've also met women that are 60 years old, they've already been through menopause and they still have it. So we're, we're really not sure. Like there is an estrogen component. I definitely think that that is something that is there and that has been shown with evidence, but we really don't know what the single cause is. And I really think with this condition in particular, that there just isn't one thing that's causing it. It can be genetic factors, it can have environmental influences as well, so we're just you know,
0: not sure. What about the symptomatology? You know, that I would think that most males would think that endometriosis presents with some tummy pain and that can be even severe, but they think it's going to be restricted to the sort of Mm -hmm. lower abdominal area where the reproductive organs are. But mm-hmm. what's the breadth of symptoms?
1: So um, because it is a complex condition and it, is, it can be quite progressive as well, The symptomology that a lot of them can be really debilitating, um, but it also depends on the severity and the stage of the endometriosis that the woman has. So the main symptoms can be dysmenorrhea, painful intercourse, chronic pelvic pain, menorrhagia, infertility and bowel irregularities. However, the even though these are considered to be the main symptoms, women can have fatigue, headaches, bloating, limb pain, there's really a wide a wide range. Um, but there's also, you know, if you think of the picture of irritable bowel syndrome, um, that is sometimes how it can present, but they don't have any reproductive issues. Their period or their menstrual cycle is, is fine for them and they don't have any period pain. So it really varies from woman to woman, but then when we can also be asymptomatic and not even know that they have it. So... You know, there's no real big list of symptomology other than those top five or so.
0: Okay, so diagnosis. I mean, this, is, this one's the big one. Um oh, Misdiagnosis, definitely. non-diagnosis.
1: Yeah, just women wanting to get a diagnosis. Yeah. Um, so generally, it's diagnosed by laparoscopic surgery, um, and this is considered to be the gold standard for the diagnosis process for endometriosis. And it's because it allows the visualization of the organs but also they're able to retrieve a a biopsy of the tissue and and get that tested as well. And once the diagnosis process has begun and the surgery has been done, endometriosis is classified into stages. So your stage one refers to the minimal presence of endometriosis and minimal um, involvement with neighbouring organs. Stage two is mild and stage three is moderate and stage four is severe. Mm. So um, even though those stages can clearly articulate how bad the endometriosis is, it doesn't actually match the symptomology. So a woman with stage one being minimal involvement, she might have, for example, four spots um, throughout her uterus Mm. and um, she has no symptoms, but then she could have stage two being mild and be completely and utterly unable to work, unable to move, you know, She can have really bad symptoms and the same with stage four being severe. You would think with so much involvement of neighboring organs and the reproductive organs that she could possibly be in so much pain and have really bad symptoms but actually have none at all. So it's, it really varies. There's no real clear, clear cut.
0: Yeah, that screams of an incorrect classification system.
1: It's yeah, but it, it's it's really based on the presence of endometriosis. It doesn't match the symptomology. Yeah,
0: but can yeah. you imagine that being applied to colon cancer or irritable bowel syndrome? It, yeah, with, it, it with it the Rome work. criteria.
1: Yeah, that's right, and, and that's a, you know another thing that pain is subjective. So everyone has very different mm. pain thresholds. So. Mm you know, you might prick your finger and that's absolute agony for you, whereas for someone else who didn't even notice. So that's also another thing that would need to be taken into account. But that, that the stages are based off um, the American system, uh, the American reproductive system. So, yeah, they just don't match, which just makes it confusing when women are told they've got stage four and they think, oh my God, this is really, really bad. That I've had no symptoms. Like, what, what does that mean exactly? You know, they're not feeling anything that's going on. So that can kind of create a lot of misconfusion
0: and and issues for women. So with regards to diagnosis, and Mm -hmm. if you've got, I mean, let's take a simple thing, you know, lower abdominal Mm -hmm. pain that's cyclical and it's, you know, worse around either menstruation or halfway through your period, let's say, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going really simplistic here. What do women need to do if initial therapies from their GP or their natural health practitioner don't work. What should they be asking to be done? Who should they be seeking to see or get referred to?
1: Well, this is a, a really big issue for women. Um, and even if she hasn't got any menstrual irregularities that are occurring, she's really not sure what's, what's happening, just looks at some abdominal pain. Like, of course, you go to you know, your GP or your complementary medicine practitioner but you really need to try and get to the gynecologist. So there's been some research that's stated that once women get to a gynecologist, they can shorten their um, diagnostic delay period. So generally, it's 7 to 10 years for a woman to be diagnosed with endometriosis, which is beyond ridiculous. Um, If they are able to get to a gynecologist, then it's, they get closer to that diagnosis, which is really important because you don't want to be sitting with you know some mild endometriosis and leave it for a couple of years or decades and then go and you're unable to have children or you're told the only treatment available is a complete hysterectomy, which is not what you're after. So the best thing that women can do is really advocate for themselves, really fight for themselves and really push their practitioners to hear them because this is a really, really big issue. Women go in there and they're completely dismissed. They're told they're hypochondriacs and that's just not okay. That's not proper care. That's You just don't do that's, that. That's, that's not, not right. medicine, no. No, and it's a really difficult issue because some women you know they may not feel comfortable advocating for themselves they may not know exactly what's going on but if they can go look no this is not working i want to see someone else get a second opinion as much as they can Um, but unfortunately with doctor shopping you know you. You're always going to get that fifty-fifty chance of a doctor that will hear you and will follow up with everything, and a doctor that won't.
0: I guess this is part of the problem: is people won't go back to the same doctor and say it's not working; they'll go to a different doctor.
1: That's right. That's right. Which you need to be able to go back, yeah, and say, "Look, if there's something else that I can do, there's some more tests." But like even if women just educate themselves, you know, have a Google around about different conditions and try and understand what's possibly going on. Like I know of someone that just had bloating. And everything else was fine. And she was diagnosed with stage four endometriosis. And she had a two-week period between going to two different GPs and one gynecologist and two different surgeons. And within that two-week period, she was able to get it sorted. But she really had to push. She was just like, this is just no, this is not right. I know my body. Yeah. This is, something's wrong. You need to do something.
0: What if somebody's even seen a specialist, a gynae, and they're still not getting the answers that they want. Is there anything further, anywhere further that they can go?
1: I'm aware of, um, especially in in Queensland, there's a number of clinics that are now specialising in endometriosis. So they are gynecologists, but they're also laparoscopic surgeons. So trying to find someone that specialises in that area and has the correct medical degrees for that would be the next step, even asking for a referral or going back to a different GP or the same GP if a woman's happy with her GP. Yeah. saying that, you know, I have found this this specialist. I really want to get in and see them. Can I please have a referral?
0: Yeah. So that's the so Cree that, yeah, Cree specialty. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there is there is a, um, a speciality in, in this area. Yeah. yeah. But that's probably the next best thing that they can do, and it really comes back to advocating for themselves when doctors aren't listening. Yeah. And, and doing that doctor shopping, like, because there's not much else you can do. Um, even if you, your main practitioner is a complementary medicine practitioner, there's all those issues with complementary medicine practitioners referring anyway. So, really going through the medical system to try and get to the laparoscopic surgery is the only way to really get there.
0: Yeah, and I think there was some some evidence that the first laparoscopic surgery is the real one that you want to get done right.
1: Yes, <laughs> that's correct. Yes, you do. You want to get the diagnosis. You want to clear out as much as humanly possible. Um and then you wanna start having your team of practitioners to help support you and prevent the reoccurrence.
0: Mm. Yeah. And uh, just for our listeners, we will definitely be putting a lot of support material up on the fxmedicine.com.au site so that you can access it there and so that you can help your patients from there. Obviously, listeners in different countries from Australia, um, you might get some guidance there, but you'll have to find those appropriate practitioners in your own country. So uh, we've gone through diagnosis. What about diagnostic delay? This is the big one. This is the big issue. What does it cause?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the biggest issue is the normalization of period pain in society. That's just full stop. Um, and that's because throughout all of human being life, really, um, menstruation has always been a woman's business and it's always been something that we have to hide, feel uncomfortable about. Um, and this doesn't just come from women that possibly have endometriosis. It comes from men, uh friends, family of a woman who possibly has endometriosis. that comes from male and female doctors. So this is a huge social issue
2: yeah.
1: um, targeting that. And I know that there's been some work done in the UK recently where they've released a new ad for their sanitary items. And instead of using a blue liquid to um, pretend to be menstrual blood, they're actually now using a red liquid. So yeah. even though that's something quite small, like they're actually showing, no, this is what it kind of looks like. Which is really good, and it's educating the public on that. So, trying to reduce the normalisation of period pain is probably going to be the, the easiest thing forward. But that's even you know, teaching not only females or you know young girls in high school or you know later years of primary school, like really educating everyone, that is really important because women are going to need support from from partners and friends and family, and so really you know teaching everyone is what's going to really help reduce the diagnostic delay. with Absolutely.
0: And I think taking away these weird taboos, it's a human body, for goodness sake. No. Like. I know.
1: I know. I, I'm it's, so glad. I understand. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm so glad about our, like sex ed it was called, but I'm so glad about yeah. our sex ed that we had because it wasn't the deciding factor, but it was certainly one of those things where I went, wow, yeah. the human body's really cool. And that's, that's, one of right. things, that's one of the things that led me eventually to do nursing.
1: That's right. And, and there's something um, that I've recently conducted. I did a systematic literature review um, looking at women's experience of endometriosis. And in there, actually, there was a theme that I identified that women weren't even taught about reproductive diseases in their sexo classes. So that's another area that we can try and teach women, this is what endo looks like, these are what the symptoms are, this is what happens, and this is what you can do to seek help. So even just going back to the high school sex classes and helping to really inform people then and continue that on throughout high school is really important as well.
0: And I guess, I mean, one of the issues, one of the problems with endo is that there's such a breadth of presentation that it's really hard That's to right. categorize. So, you know, That's as right. you say, stage one to stage four, but the symptomatology yeah. has nothing mm-hmm. really to do with the objective That's presentation right. of lesions.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. That's definitely right. It really comes down to to really listening to them, so there is um a lot of women will explain that their pain, their menstrual pain, feels like a stabbing, tearing, burning, stinging type of sensation. Whereas women who have um, primary dysmenorrhea is sometimes described as more of a cramping, pushing type pain. So that you can see there's a little bit of a, a difference. And the other thing that's been um, identified in research is that if medical professionals asked women about their sexual health that would help in reducing the delay in diagnosis as well because a lot of women with endo do have painful intercourse. Right. But that's something that we don't actually talk about either. And so if they've just said, okay, you've got all these bowel symptoms, you've got menstrual problems, it sounds like IBS, but if they just said, okay, do you have any pain with intercourse and really talk to them about that, there is a possibility that they might go, okay, I think this is outside my scope. I will refer to a gynecologist.
0: So when you mention that stabbing pain, Mm-hmm. I, I, I seem to recall that, you know, one of the issues with endometriosis is that it's hard to look for other these, you know, sort of serum markers or anything. Is,
2: yeah, is yeah.
0: there any hints, any clues that at least there's inflammation going on? At least there's something to go, hang on, you know, mm-hmm. we need to look further, you know, we need to... That's
1: right. Well, from what literature I've looked into, women don't even get offered to do any blood tests. Um, when they go to their doctor presenting with menstrual irregularities anyways. But as far as I know that there isn't, but I have recently read, I think it was a news article, so I'm not really sure on how correct it is, but there are some researchers that are trying to look into possible serum markers. Mm. So that might be something that comes out in the future, but I think at this stage, there there isn't.
0: Some people have even said that endometriosis might have an autoimmune component Highly controversial, certainly not backed up by a lot of uh, research, but there are researchers looking at it. What's your opinion of this?
1: With my understanding um, of how endometriosis works, um, we're really not sure. I know that there's research that is showing there's possibly autoimmune factors, but then there's also research showing there's inflammatory factors, mm. and there's estrogen factors, and there's low progesterone factors, and there's environmental factors. So we really, there's no real clear picture.
0: No. And um, it certainly doesn't classify even, as a classical autoimmune condition, does it?
1: No, it, does, it doesn't. I, and I, it's, even when you just think about that, I just, it doesn't make, it's not very clear. Mm. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Whereas you know, trying to understand exactly how it works just based on one pathway. I don't think that's how it's going
0: to work. Yeah, I I think the issue comes, me not being an expert, forgive me, this is just Mm -hmm. me pondering, but um, I think one of the issues comes from that autoimmune diseases have inflammatory components to it. That doesn't mean that every inflammatory component automatically makes it an autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to have autoantibodies and they're not seen Mm -hmm. in endometriosis as far as Mm -hmm. I'm aware.
1: And, and we, we really, we just need to do more research on... We, more research is really, really needed to really understand it. But, mm. you know, research takes a very long time as well, and obviously it's quite costly, but that's the only way we're going to be able to find out the complete 100% pathophysiology. Like, we don't even know the pathogenesis yet. We don't know how how it's caused. There's multiple theories. Right. Um, with, with autoimmune being, being one of them, same with inflammation, um, as well as, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the genetic... Components. None of there's a bit of research going on. I think at UQ who's looking into that as well. Um, there's also the, the standard theory, and it's a historical theory. Is that it's retrograde menstruation? But that research has shown that that doesn't answer the question because some women can have retrograde menstruation and not have endo. So really, we just we don't know yet. I think we're getting closer. I'm hoping we're getting closer, but we just I don't think we're going to get a one single answer. Especially with some environmental factors as well.
0: Is there any, you know, dare I say the word hero researchers that we should be looking at the work of?
1: I don't know if he does too much research, but his name is um, Dr. Carmen Mazat, and he is a laparoscopic surgeon and gynecologist in America. He is. He works with. He does a lot of work with the World Endometriosis Congress, as well, and he's phenomenal he's written a lot of books on the history of endometriosis he's done so I don't know how active is in research I know he's done a lot of publications but if that's something that he continually works on but he's got a lot of different research articles and textbooks that talk about the pathophysiology of endometriosis as well as how throughout history endometriosis has presented, what he uses for his patients, what works, what doesn't work. So he's got a lot of wonderful resources.
0: And, of course, you've got wonderful people in Australia like um, Professor Jason Abbott and yes, uh, Natasha Andriartis and others who are specialists, yes. they're Cree specialists. Um, that's and right, that's right. These, um, I mean, Jason, I think, is on the board, isn't he, of Endometriosis Australia? He, that's that right, he
1: is, yes. Um, so a lot of the um, board members on endometriosis Australia do have a bit of research in that area or at least during clinical practice there may be a point that women could go to as well. There's some researchers that are actually looking into the Australian healthcare burden and economic cost. Um, I believe they're still doing data analysis. So I'm not too sure when their publication might come out. Um, I've also included a small section of this into one of my PhD projects so I'll have a little bit of information that I can contribute to the field as well. But as I mentioned earlier, there was only really that um, 2012 paper by the World Endometriosis Research Centre.
0: Wow. Five years ago, guys.
1: Yeah. Yeah, So we really need to, to get moving on this. But you're right. This is if we can do some research in this area, there's a possibility that the government will start looking this way and, and really trying to help.
0: What about naturopathy? You know, one would think that look, this is undiagnosed or not or d- delayed mm-hmm. diagnosis. It mm-hmm. goes around, causes a big healthcare burden, and so we need to treat it really effectively with strong medicines that we have. Mm-hmm. And yet, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be that clear cut um, thing yeah. that it's just take a pill or 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 do a laparoscopic surgery and it's gone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what's the role of naturopathic medicine here?
1: I, I definitely think naturopathy and even complementary medicine practitioners in in general really have can have a really strong role in supporting women with endometriosis, but there isn't much data to really show what naturopaths are doing if it's effective, if it's safe if you know, if it's working for them, if women if it's cost effective, we don't really know, but I think one thing I really like um about endometriosis and the way that the treatment plan should be working is that women don't have one single practitioner, they have a team. And I think that can really help support women in multiple ways. So for naturopaths in particular, they've got a large number of tools that they can draw on. They can use herbal medicines, they can use nutritional supplementation, diet and lifestyle. Um, And there's a lot of research that's starting to come out about dietary impacts with endometriosis So helping to educate women and what they should and shouldn't be eating to help reduce any possible risks that may be aggravating the condition is really important as well. So I think definitely having a naturopath on a team of practitioner supporter women is, is something that we can move forward to. And there's you know a lot of research coming out about acupuncture being really helpful in managing pain as well. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a, a wide range of research that's coming out in this area, but definitely naturopaths can be very supportive in this case. Um, even after a woman's had laparoscopic surgery and just educating them and helping to support their hormonal dysfunctions that are occurring, if there's inflammation going on, all all their toolkits that naturopaths use to manage the condition can really help, especially after that surgery period
0: thank you for correcting me on the the point of um, complementary medicine because acupuncture is indeed very important in this. It is. uh,
1: Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of research on acupuncture and complementary medicine research to manage the condition as as well as um, traditional Chinese medicine. There's there's a bit of research that's coming out. I think 2014 was one of the last um, systematic reviews that came out on the effects of traditional Chinese medicine managing endometriosis. So there's it's research out there because it can really help support people.
0: What about your stuff? What about your research?
2: Um,
1: so as, as you mentioned earlier, I am a PhD student. So I'm having um, my, my project is primarily focusing on metropathine endometriosis. And so what I'm really trying to look okay, at is understanding the historical and the contemporary naturopathic approach managed to manage endometriosis as well as the associated symptoms of dysmenorrhea and menorrhagia. Um, so I'm doing this in three large projects. Um, I'm also looking at describing the prevalence of use of naturopathic consultations and treatments by women with endometriosis, as well as looking at what naturopaths are using in clinical practice So, and building on the foundational work that has yet to really be laid down in Australia.
0: Now, can you tell us any data that's that you've gotten from that yet?
1: I do. I, I have lots of data, so um, particularly from the hysterical um, approach. So I will go through um, the the herbal remedies first because it's actually quite extensive, which I was really quite surprised. So out of um, 37 traditional texts that I reviewed and 61 journal articles that I conducted at the National University of Natural Medicine, I've identified 139 herbs that were traditionally used to manage dysmenorrhea. What's quite interesting is while I was studying to be a naturopath, I can't even remember ever studying 139 herbs. I swear there was probably like 10 that were recommended yeah. for dysmenorrhea. So that shows, you know, a bit of changing evidence and, and changing maybe how things are working and how we understand our herbs and whether or not they're effective. Um, but the top 10 that were traditionally used for dysmenorrhea was black cohosh, blue cohosh, pulsatilla, cramp bark, it's, this one's quite interesting. It's called Life Roach. Um, I'm really quite interested in looking into this one more because it was dubbed the female regulator by a lot of the eclectics. But I've spoken with Australian the and Life American naturopaths. Yeah, Life Roach. And they, they haven't heard of it. They're, they're not really sure uh, where it came from, but it's very strong in American naturopathic text.
0: And, and Sorry, uh, what was the botanical name of this?
1: Seraco uh, aurora.
0: I've never heard of it.
1: Yeah. So I, I've spoken with quite a number of, American Press and they haven't heard of it either. So I'm not sure if this, possibly it's from Native American or possibly even Canadian. So there's a lot of research i will probably be doing wow. to look into that one. Mm. Um, the very famous Polish unicorn root, which we know um, we still currently use for dysmenorrhea. Jalcinium was also quite prominent, as well as black whore, wild yam, and partridge berry, which was more likely used in American naturopathic practice compared to Australian. So that's the top 10 for... Um, dysmenorrhea out of the 139 herbs, but I did also identify homeopathics. And there was a small number that are recommended, particularly vomica, which was used for women who had dysmenorrhea, but also had a sensation of a very weighty, heavy uterus or had bearing down pains that occurred at the same time as their menstrual cycle. Um, there was sepia as well, which was more recommended when a woman had dragging or bearing down pains down her legs, like her inner thighs, that was more likely recommended in those type of situations. Uh, there was ignatia, pulsatilla, apis, belladonna, Camomilla, coffee and graphites as well, which were more likely recommended from a homeopathic
0: point of view. What's the evidence? This is just looking at use, not evidence behind that use. This,
1: this is looking at the traditional naturopathic prescriptions used for dysmenorrhea. So when I went through all of the texts, they would have um whether it be a chapter on dysminery and they would list out what homeopathics or herbal medicines or dietary interventions that they would recommend. So um for example, you know Scudder would you know, stated that nuxomica was beneficial in a woman that experienced dysmenorrhea with a weighty uterus or yeah. had an irritable uterus. Yeah. So this is traditional evidence. That we still use in clinical practice.
0: Okay, but one of those yep. herbs I noted was gelsemium. Now that's a that's an nice. S four prescription only herb in Australia.
1: That's Gelsemium. Yeah, so we, we know it's poisonous as well, but now we don't we don't use it. But traditionally they did. So there was a lot of traditional um, treatments that they use that I'm aware of that we don't use anymore. And it's possibly because as time has gone on and evidence actually that's detrimental, um, that's not being effective, that's a poison, right. but, You know that knowledge is coming through now, which of course you don't want to be giving someone gelsy and seeing that it's poisonous, but there, you, know, you can use it homeopathically, but I'm not sure if there's any research that has backed up to say that it's effective and safe.
0: I was blessed to come from an era where the S4 herbs were made by mm-hmm. a certain company in Australia, um oh, okay. who had medical herbs. And um a doctor used to use chalcemium. And wow this doctor was very safe in the utilization of the prescriptions mm-hmm. never an issue that i saw and and seemed to be extremely effective i think the the only yeah. issue with overdose was that it could depress breathing so i get that there's a yeah. there could be an issue with overprescription over improper use
2: um,
0: and yeah, unregulated but you know it's just to me it's just sad that these s4 herbs aren't made anymore aren't utilized anymore
1: yeah yeah, and that's you know quite a big issue as well. We mm. need to have more research to really work out what the appropriate dosage is as well, particularly if if they are you know you know you need to have more caution. With them.
0: Yeah, so we need mm-hmm. we we've got the list of historical use, but we don't have yeah. the the data to show safety and efficacy Correct. yet.
1: That's right, and and that's just because well, particularly in Australia, whilst I know that there is a little bit of research on endometriosis and naturopathy, there's not a lot, um, and so I'm really hoping that the work that I'm doing will help lay down some of the foundational work so we can build research projects off that and, and effect, you know look at the efficacy and making sure that what we're prescribing is, is being of benefit to women and is helping them manage their symptoms or address the cause of
0: the problem. Right. I also yeah. noted one of the, you know, it is the poster child of hormonal herbs, and that is the false unicorn, and it is diabolically expensive Mm -hmm. so you know you bring this to a cost benefit factor and it's going to fail every time why is it so expensive
1: (laughs) um i believe that it was used and particularly based on what data i've looked at because it's number four out of 10 uh, out of 139 but it um was pretty much wild crafted and utilized so much that it was getting to the point of extinction. Yeah. That's what I've read about it. Yeah. Um, I know you can still use it in clinical practice now, but that would be up to the discretion of the naturopath whether or not they were comfortable spending that much money and making sure that it was actually you know, suitable for the woman.
0: What about the symptoms of dysmenorrhea and menorrhagia, common symptoms in endometriosis? What's the traditional approach?
1: Yeah, so for menorrhagia, it was very similar to dysmenorrhea in that herbal medicine was more prominent for the treatment. Um, So, I've identified 101 different herbs um, that they recommended to use in cases of menorrhagia. So, the first one was one that I've never come across before in my studies, um, studying my naturopath degree, but was ergot. And and it's a fungi um, that particularly grows on rye. Um, But what's quite interesting about ergot is that they've actually now made a lot of pharmaceuticals that they now use in um, afterbirth, bleeding, and hemorrhage. And migrate. Yes, I forgot. Yes, and migraines. Yeah, so there's ergometrine, which is used for heavy bleeding that occurs after birth and it works by stiffening the uterus um, to control the bleeding. So you can kind of understand how that might be of benefit for women who have menorrhagia if the constituent is the actual one that's having that activity. Um, the other herbs for out of the top 10 was best fruit, yarrow, life fruit again came back. Um, and EpiCac, which we know is a very strong emetic, um, so dosage of that did actually um, vary. Uh, cinnamon, Canadian fleabane, wild geranium, golden seal, and black ore. So some of these herbs I'm aware of that we do still use, such as cinnamon and golden seal and yarrow, but some of them I think have more in black ore but have black. more of a prominent in um, American naturopathic practice as well.
0: Yeah, I've never and, used fleabane. Have you, have you ever used it or heard of
1: it? No, I, I've, I've never studied it. I've never heard of it, heard of it at all. But it was Canadian fleabane that was more likely recommended. So that might have just been that there was a large volume of the American and um, Canadian text that actually stated that, that herb was of benefit. And there was also some homeopathics as well. Um, Apis was number one for menorrhagia as well as veg, but it was um, more likely used when a woman had oxygenation issues. So if she had a pale complexion or poor circulation, blue lips, and mineraja, they're more likely to use um, that homeopathic remedy. Um, uh, EpiCac was another one, as well as Belladonna, camomilla, and Noxomica as well. So it's quite an extensive list. There was also hydrotherapy. A lot of the applications, the cold water applications and vaginal, vaginal douches and enemas and cold baths as well were more yeah. likely recommended, which we don't practice in Australia, unfortunately.
0: No, I know. We just yeah, go to the, you know, the hot water bottle rather than something like a slippery right. elm or castor that's oil. Right.
1: Yeah, um, well, I'm poultice. hoping hydrotherapy comes back.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think yeah. I need to make the salient point to our listeners about safety, and that is when you mention those homeopathic remedies, some yeah. of those remedies are toxic if you don't take them in a homeopathic form.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, but yeah, so definitely hydrotherapy was recommended. Um, the diet and lifestyle for menorrhagia was really quite interesting because they actually stated what they believed the cause of menorrhagia was. Yeah. Oh.
2: Um,
1: which I was quite shocked. Um, So they believe that women have menorrhagia because there's been excessive stimulation of the body. So this meant that a woman has done excessive physical activity, she's overworked, she's exhausted due to diseases, um, she's had an extreme cold or she has excessive sexual indulgences and that's what they used to think caused menorrhagia. So a lot of the diet and lifestyle treatments were about Locking a woman away in a dark, cold room, being left alone, um, what? which sounds really horrible, <laughs> and consuming a really bland diet like no tea, no coffee, no salt, no pepper, no herbs, um, you know, very, very bland, you know, mashed potato
0: type Anything diet. to cause more problems.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. so, but it was really interesting to actually see that and know that that's not what we do anymore. So. You know, research is coming out there and we've got, you know, really good, wonderful practitioners that are working in these areas and, and doing the best that they can instead of locking them in a cold, dark room. <laughs> well, these, these are the great. founders of naturopathy and this is, this is what they used to do.
0: Oh, so. my goodness. So naturopathy's got a bit of, bit of uh, stuff to answer for as well. It's not just, yeah, uh, just the medical <laughs> field that, you know, put people in sanitariums and things like that. Uh, asylums, yes, forgiveness for asylums.
2: That's true.
0: How about the traditional approach to managing endometriosis as opposed to dysmenorrhea and menorrhagia?
1: Well, this is actually really interesting. It's um, something I was really shocked to find when I was doing my data collection and data analysis. So from all of the texts that I actually looked at and reviewed, the term endometriosis didn't come up once. So I looked wow. at hundreds and hundreds of books and there was no mention. Um, oh. But to provide, I guess, a little bit of background and history of endometriosis um, to understand why this possibly didn't happen was was in 1927, Dr. John Sampson coined the term endometriosis. So he dedicated a lot of his life um, work to endometriosis Um, and he was also the one that stated that endometriosis caused by retrograde menstruation. However, in 1860, that was when um, endometriosis was microscopically discovered. So my time period of my project fits within the history of endometriosis, but I found nothing. Wow. So yeah, I was totally blown away by this. I really thought I would find like, even just one one sentence from someone, but... There was just no mention at all. So I've done some extra um, personal research to really identify why this has possibly happened. And what I've been able to find is that how we understand endometriosis is that it was called different things throughout history. So over 4,000 years, it was called uterine fury, suffocation of the womb. My favorite is the wandering womb because it, you can understand how endometriosis is and that it wanders the body. Um as well as irritable uterus. And uh, a really big one was that it was once called hysteria. Ah. And, yeah, so there's a lot of um, data that has been conducted by Dr. Um, Carmen Nazat that I mentioned earlier in the U.S., where he conducted a project that looked over 4,000 years of medical data that identified the history of endometriosis. And his, his conclusion was that the presentation of hysteria um, and endometriosis were extremely similar, and it's possible that hysteria in a lot of these cases was actually endometriosis. So I think that's... And where um, my data has, has left is that there's a possibility of the eclectics and the naturopathic practitioners of the time were just not aware of the change in medical terms or it wasn't something they came across. Like I said earlier, women can be asymptomatic or they might just have a few symptoms such as dysmenorrhea or menorrhagia and they're just treating those conditions rather than realizing that there's a larger condition going on underneath. So unfortunately, I, I don't actually have any data, but I think this really shows you know, the, the lacking evidence in endometriosis for naturopathy from a traditional point of view.
0: So how are aspects of your project going to advance the field of research? What's happening?
1: Well, a, as I mentioned earlier, there there isn't really much data in the Australian naturopathic setting that's showing how you know, the role or the value of naturopathy is for women. In, with endometriosis. So, I'm really hoping that my work will lay down some of the foundational work so we can build up some further research on this area, particularly looking at the effectiveness of naturopathic care and seeing what the outcomes are. Like, if a woman does have endo and she's decided not to go through and have surgery, like, is there a way that we can possibly see if what we're doing is improve, improving her quality of life, as well as whether or not you know the integration of naturopathic care is appropriate for women? with endometriosis too. So I'm really hoping mine will be laying the um, foundational work.
0: Absolutely brilliant. And I've got to say, like I know you outside of FX Medicine and you Mm -hmm. are thorough. So, Thank you. So I, I, like, I just I can't try. applaud you more. You don't try, you <laughs> succeed. You do really well. And, Thank you. And I've got to say, wow, I, like I want your autograph for going to research those oh, texts. That would have been an honour just to go in and oh, see those old I, texts. I cannot even describe
1: the joy that I felt being in that room. Oh, it, wow. it was the best experience of my life. I, I can't wait to hopefully go back.
0: I hope to see the next phase of your research. I really do. Because I I know that it's going to be pointed. It's going to have a direct, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an end point that you can use to then jump or that you can use in practice. So very well done for you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The FX Medicine team would like to thank the enormous generosity of all our guests who have graciously donated their time, their expertise, and their stories of both triumph and adversity. Most of all, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for your continued feedback and support, and for giving us direction and purpose as we move forward together into the future.